Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. And we're going to begin in Micah chapter 6. If you would like to join me there, that's uh, your Bible's divided between Old and New Testaments. Uh, at least that's how the English Bibles divvy that up. And so uh, just in between them, if you'll just flip back a couple of books uh, toward the last of the Old Testament, you'll find Micah's prophecy. And then if you will mark Luke chapter 4, uh, we'll move very quickly actually from Micah to Luke chapter 4. While you're turning, uh, we're in the midst of a series called Justice, People of Justice. What does justice look like? Uh, what does that look like practically in the lives of individuals, churches, communities at large? And of course, throughout this entire eight weeks, we're featuring various ministries here on the campus as well as off-campus ministries that we partner with that are connected with this idea of justice. Last week, uh, we announced a coat drive for the homeless through Jefferson County Community Ministries and our partners there in Charlestown. I'm delighted to see the number of coats that have showed up. This week, you'll see our friends uh, and brothers and sisters here at Covenant from Celebrate Recovery uh, just immediately out in the foyer. And so if you would like to just stop by and talk with them about their ministry, learn a little bit more about what that entails. Some of you may want to benefit from that. Others of you may want to contribute to that ministry. You may want to be trained as a leader to be able to coach individuals through the process of healing. And when we speak of healing and celebrate recovery, we're not merely speaking of substance abuse or alcoholism, although those are things that we do want to, don't want to focus on. Those are acute issues here in the tri-state area. But they're all manner of things that may or may not involve substances, things that you need freedom from, that you need to find. It might even be attitudes uh, that have kept you trapped and, and not living in the freedom that Christ promises and provides. Uh, this would be a great opportunity for you to get involved in that. Uh, let me remind you as well that a week from today, we gather at 930 for one service under one roof um, and I'm really, really excited about this time. This is our fifth Sunday, and of course we shut all the auxiliary ministries down. We bring everybody in under one, run, one roof. You'll see twice or more the number of chairs that you're looking at right now so that we have adequate space for everybody. We're going to kick it off with prayer. Uh, our elders and deacons have been praying for each and every one of you, and we'll be standing here at the front and scattered in different points throughout the building for you to come to them, approach them, unload your burdens together with them, and allow them to intercede for you, uh, as well as to pray for our church family as we continue to move forward under the leadership of the Lord Jesus. And so that will be from 9 30 to 10, and then right at 10 o'clock, we're going to kick off a celebratory time of worship uh, that will last longer than usual, but we will also, pending your affirmation this afternoon of some new leaders, be appointing elders and deacons uh, new to that role as well. So you have the opportunity as the family of God to lay hands on them. And then finally, probably the thing I'm most excited about is we're going to introduce you to two church planters, two men of God who have felt the call to start churches, one in Maryland, one in Virginia. You may remember several months ago, I talked about the long-term vision for Covenant and that it involved, among other things, multiple campuses. We have people from Virginia, West Virginia, and Maryland who come and are a part of our church family. And so why wouldn't we have a physical substantive presence in each one of those locations? That includes both satellite campuses of this congregation, but it also includes autonomous new churches that will be all on their own in just a matter of years. And we're going to get the opportunity to introduce you to two of those men. Uh, next Sunday, and you'll have the opportunity to pray over them as well. And then this fast that we've been in the middle of, and I know for, in, in, you've participated in that to varying degrees, our family has as well, but we'll sort of officially break that on Sunday also with some heavy snacks outside just after that service. You really do not want to miss this incredible time together. And so we've been in this series of justice, people of justice, and so far we've seen a call to repent 
We started with that, that Isaiah is calling in the 58th chapter of his prophecy a group of God's people out of their complacency and out of their ambivalence. And then last week we looked at really the contrast of that, the 146th Psalm. You have this celebratory picture of people that have found and, and discovered the heart of God. And as we compared and contrasted those two passages, we came to a conclusion. Both of them were attempting to get to worship, but only one of them got there. And the thing that made the difference was that one group had determined and had discovered God's heart for justice, particularly God's heart for the vulnerable, and the other did not. And so I think that raises a very critical question that we should ask today as we continue in week three of this eight-week series, and that is, what exactly is this justice that we're supposed to have in our hearts? And even more importantly, what does it look like when it's applied? We've looked at the Hebrew word mishpat, the 200 plus times that it's used in the Old Testament. We've seen its meaning, but but what does that actually look like? What is advocacy for the vulnerable, giving the vulnerable their due? What does that look like in the context of, of really our entire Bible, both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament? And that is what takes us to Micah chapter six. This is a somewhat familiar passage. In verse eight, he says this, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, Micah, interestingly enough, was a contemporary of Isaiah. They lived at roughly the same time period. Isaiah was at the city center of Jerusalem, so he was an urban guy. Micah was in a place called Morasheth. And if you've never heard of Morasheth, then it's pretty much a place like Shepherdstown. Apart from our tourism industry and Shepherd University, probably no one would have heard of this particular area of the country. That's where he's at. In fact, theologians jokingly refer to him as the country preacher. But in many cases, as you look at Micah's prophecy, you come to understand he's dealing with the same issues out in the country that Isaiah is dealing with in the city. Most notably, this ambivalence toward the poor, the sacrificial system is seen as the end-all be-all of what it means to worship the one true and living God. Micah, just like his contemporary Isaiah, is calling his people back and saying, this is what the Lord requires, justice, kindness, and humility. And it's kind of like that three-legged stool up there. All three of those are necessary. Anybody ever tried to sit on a three-legged stool with only two legs? Doesn't work too well, does it, right? And so you've got to have all three, justice, kindness, or some of you may have a translation that says mercy, and then humility. We don't have a lot of people in the world, even across our ideological spectrum here in America, that have all three. Would you agree? I don't think it matters what party you belong to. I think oftentimes we have come up with such simplistic answers on the one hand or dogmatic answers on the other, but you must have all three. Because if you, for example, long to do justice, and but you don't have compassion on everybody, not just the vulnerable, but you see everyone as a human being created in God's image and likeness, and then furthermore, you lack the humility to deal with the problem, you don't end up actually doing justice. What you end up doing is virtue signaling. And let me tell you something, nobody gets their belly full by your Twitter feed. That's not how it happens. Nobody gets their belly full by you being enraged at somebody else that you differ with. If you want to do justice, you've got to have kindness toward all people created in the image of God. And all that has to be brought together with humility and understanding that that I'm doing this under the Lord. And so you could apply that really to any situation. For example, in just a few weeks, we're going to talk about the issue of of the immigrant. And I know that's a controversial subject in our time. Scripture could not be more clear, at least when it comes to what our heart should be toward the alien and the stranger. But, But here's the thing. We must do justice on that subject, but we must also have humility on that subject. And part of humility is recognizing that that is an incredibly complex issue that we're not always going to agree about what the the practical implications need to be for this. And that if somebody differs with you, that doesn't necessarily make them whatever you might think they are, a racist or something else, perhaps. And so we're going to have to look at this with that understanding. Doing justice in the truest sense of the word requires both kindness and humility to go alongside of it. And so with that in mind, let's, let's ask this question. What is justice? What does it mean in the, in the context of my Isaiah's preaching? And here's what we discover. As you continue on in verses 9 and 10 of Micah chapter 6, he's contrasting this command against the popular injustices of his day. He says, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? 
and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales, with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And so chiefly what Isaiah is aiming at were corrupt business practices that were happening in his day. Today, this might take a number of forms. It might be a dishonest telemarketer that preys on the naivete and the fear of older adults, people in their 70s or 80s, and scare them out of something in their checking account. It might take the, um, the form of private student loan institutions whose, let's just be honest, their interest rates as well as the loan structures are predatory against the younger people in our culture. It might be payday lenders. It might be lottery systems that enable our own government, state governments, to build the poorest among us out of what little bit they have. And some of you have been wondering, well, I wondered last time I bought that lottery ticket what God might have to say about that. Well, now you have your answer. There you go. When you, when you participate in and enable a system that has been statistically proven in city after city after city to do nothing but at the end of the day oppress the poor, a good Muslim friend of mine, as a matter of fact, has a lot more sense than a lot of Christians on this issue. He says state lottery systems are an excellent way to take money from poor people and use it to educate the children of rich people. That's what we're talking about. This is what, I, this is what Micah is screaming at is the injustice of this. And so for God's people to, to do justice in that context is to advocate for the vulnerable when our systems, whatever they are, might seek to take advantage of those individuals. And, and the consistent message, not just of Micah, but of all of the Hebrew prophets in almost every context they addressed, is that holiness, the pursuit of holiness, and the pursuit of justice are like two hands. You've got to have both of them. In fact, our friend Walt Kaiser, phenomenal Old Testament scholar, puts it this way, thus, it, this saying is not an invitation in lieu of the gospel to save oneself by kindly acts of equity and fairness. We talked about that last week. You don't go to heaven by helping the poor. That, that's not how it works. Nor is it an attack on the forms of sacrifices and cultic acts mentioned in the tabernacle and temple instructions. It was instead a call for the natural consequence of truly forgiven men and women. We're going to dive deeper into that thought here uh, as we move forward. To demonstrate the reality of their faith. Again, faith alone saves. But the kind of faith that saves, if you were at our leadership breakfast, we talked about that last week, that James says there's a kind of faith that saves, and then there's all other, other expressions of faith that are basically illegitimate. The kind of faith that saves comes with a particular level and quality of fruit. That's what Kaiser's talking about here. Living it out in the marketplace. Such living would be accompanied with acts and deeds of mercy, justice, and giving oneself for the orphan, the widow, and the poor. And so if our faith is genuine and real, this is what it means. This is what it means. Now, have you ever wondered, though, why the prophets would rail about this stuff until they're blue in the face? I mean, you can't escape it. It's all over the Hebrew Scriptures. I think at least one of the reasons is that under the Old Covenant, this was a necessity, but nobody could ever really pull this off. Not under the Old Covenant. And the overall message of Scripture from beginning to end when comparing these messages with the New Testament, is that God requires holiness and justice, but only Jesus can bring it. That's what we're looking at today. That, that takes us to Luke chapter 4. Because Jesus is going to bring everything that these prophets talked about. He's going to bring it. it, it's been, it they've been trying to do it, trying to do it. There have been fallen systems. There have been dysfunctional systems. There have been systems that have oppressed the poor. There have been systems that have oppressed, oppressed, oppressed. No one's been able to do anything about it. Some people don't want to do anything about it because they're benefiting from it. Even in ancient Israel, there was such corruption that this could never be cleaned up. And then comes Jesus. And in Luke chapter 4, everything the prophets had challenged the people to realize hundreds of years later is about to be fulfilled. The same Jesus that Micah himself spoke about one chapter earlier in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 comes home to Nazareth for his very first public address in the synagogue. I, I remember my first message here. It, it, you know, your first message kind of sets the state. Now, I also remember the first sermon I ever preached. It was awful. 
it was, uh, it, it was, uh, it, it, I've actually still got evidence of it. It's on one of these artifact things that you'll find in an antique store now called a cassette tape. Um, and, and it, it's, yeah, none of you get to hear that. I'm just saying it was really bad, right? Uh, thankfully, Jesus' first sermon was not that bad. But this also sets the tone. Again, when I came here in February of 2016, that was my first member. Like, you got to set the tone for the kind of ministry you want, the kind of people that you envision God's people in front of you becoming, and where you want to take this ministry. That that's important. And so, the first thing that Jesus says to launch his public ministry is is really interesting here. And there's three things, three characteristics of justice that come out of this. So we'll begin with the grounds of justice. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's his introduction. Let's fast forward to his conclusion in verse 21. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus, um, much like you've heard lots of preachers do, he gets up and what does he do? He takes a text. That's that saying that we usually talk about. We say, all right, let's open our Bibles to a particular text. Let's allow the written word of God to drive the agenda for what is said. And what this agenda is, is bold because it's Jesus' agenda. This is his mission. It's what he came to do. And by the way, if you have any question at all about Jesus' absolute determination to these things, you really haven't read the account that comes before this. Because before he comes home to Nazareth, he spends 40 days fasting and praying out in the wilderness, and he gets tempted by our enemy Satan with the very things that are counter to the values that he preaches in this message. Satan comes to him at his point of greatest hunger. Some of you felt some of that this, this past month, probably during the fast. And he says, command these stones to be made bread. That's an appeal to self-indulgence. He takes him to the high pinnacle of the temple and he says, leap off. And then he quotes the Bible. Satan's really good at quoting the Bible. Leap off. The text says he will give his, chain, his, his, his angels charge over you. That's an appeal to self-importance. And by the way, Jesus was self-important. He was the only guy on the planet who ever lived who deserved to have a posture of self-importance. And what does he do? He lays it aside. It is written, do not tempt the Lord your God. Satan takes him up on a high hill. He says, I'll give you everything you see if you will worship me. That's an appeal to self-gratification. I'll have everything I want if I just compromise, if I just do this. And Jesus reje rejects all of this. And immediately after that, he comes into the temple, intentionally opens the scrolls to Isaiah 61, reads it, and his sermon is one line. I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor, why can't you do that? Because I'm not Jesus. Is that reason enough? One line. Today, this scripture is fulfilled. It's happened. I'm bringing the fulfillment of this. I, I wonder how many churches in our area are viewed that way. And since I just pastor this one, I wonder to what extent we might be viewed in that way. Since we are supposedly Jesus' people accomplishing Jesus' agenda, and since Jesus has laid out his agenda with abundant clarity in this very first sermon, how many people who call themselves Christian are viewed in this way? How many people in our community reflexively, in your neighborhood, reflexively think of you in that way? That church is full of people who do justice. Well, well that's not going to happen until we accept this, this foundational principle. In fact, this has been the great mistake of the church in the last 100 years, is to divide this idea of the spiritual needs of God's people with the tangible needs of the most vulnerable among us. How, how, do, we, how do we divide why do we do that? Well, there's a whole history behind that, and it goes back again uh, a little less than 100 years ago. There was a German theologian and pastor. He was a Baptist. His name was Walter Rausenbusch. This is his famous quote, whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. Well, that's actually exactly right. And so what he launched was something that historically has become known as the social gospel. But then what he did with it was he contended that we should spread the kingdom of God completely by our good works, not by the clear and uncompromising proclamation of the Christian gospel. 
In other words, Rauffenbusch uncoupled the religious and the social life. He did the very thing that he warned the church against. And the result was a social gospel where the, the message of the king doesn't matter nearly so much as the manifestation of the kingdom. I, I get questions occasionally, and I can always tell the, the vantage point from whence they're coming when people visit our church, and maybe they're considering, is this going to be my church home? I just moved here. Um, you, you know, And they'll, they'll ask these questions. And, and people that lean more progressive, it's always, well, pastor, look, I, I appreciate the emphasis that the church puts on sound doctrine, but really, orthopraxy is a lot more important than orthopraxy orthodoxy. I mean, what we believe doesn't really matter nearly as much as actually whether or not we're helping people. And then there'll be people from more conservative backgrounds who say the exact opposite. Pastor, listen, we appreciate the, the emphasis on sound doctrine, but when you talk about physical needs, that sounds an awful lot like Marxism to me. Where are we supposed to be? Where's that going to go? I mean, Jesus didn't call us to settle tangible issues. Jesus just called us to get people saved. And sometimes it comes through a very innocent question. Where is the priority between those two at covenant? Here's my answer. As long as I'm standing up here, yes. Yes. Jesus spoke with abundant clarity to issues of justice in Matthew 25, and Jesus spoke with abundant clarity to the proclamation of the gospel in Matthew 28, and he didn't stutter either time. So what in the world are we doing reacting to Rosenbush instead of simply following Jesus? Let's follow Jesus. And Jesus says part and parcel of my message is that there's no kingdom without a king. You don't just help people. You don't just feed, feed, put food in their bellies and help them off of substances and do that. Those kind of things are wonderful. But for followers of Jesus, as I've said throughout the series, we have a very distinct reason for doing these things. And I think in, in reaction to that moment of history that I've just described for you, many churches like ours that have a very high view of Scripture and an exclusive view of Jesus, as we should have, have run from our social responsibility because we just automatically associate it with the social gospel. So let me make this clear once again. We do not and never will preach Rausenbush's gospel here because it's not the gospel. But the gospel we preach has social implications that are grounded in the person and the work of Jesus himself. You don't deny the hungry, the vulnerable of society when our Lord Jesus in his very first public message says, I have fulfilled this vision for justice. Everything the prophets talked about, it is fulfilled in me. That's the grounds for why we do what we do as the body of Christ. Now, with that in view, let's look at the priorities of justice. Jesus goes on in verses 18 and 19. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In recent history, there's been a tendency in evangelical circles to spiritualize texts like this. I find that interesting. In fact, one of my primary sources for this message was a commentary on Luke written by a former professor of mine. I sat in his classes, and, and he does the same thing. He does the same thing. When Jesus speaks about the poor, he's talking about the spiritually poor. When he talks about the prisoner, he's talking about people that are captive to their sin. Here, here's why I find that not just, not just ironically inconsistent, but damaging to, what, to, the, to the actual words of Jesus. If I were to do that to one of the miracle narratives, I'd be looking for a job next week. If I were to talk about Jesus calming the storm and look at you and say, now look, we know that doesn't really happen. We know nobody's ever been able to do that. Jesus wasn't really able to do that. But what we've got to do is, is, is in the words of Rudolf Bultmann, we've got to demythologize that text. We've got to take the myth out of it and, and look at the truth of what it's telling us. And the truth is that when you're in the middle of your storm, whatever it is, Jesus is always there. Our elders would have a meeting tonight. I'd be out of a job tomorrow, right? And rightly so, because what, what are you doing? You're spiritualizing something that the author of Scripture intended to be literal. He says Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus calmed the freaking storm, right? And so, but, but so why do we do this with, with texts like this? Especially, by the way, 
when not only does Jesus not qualify these needs as spiritual, but he says this while standing in a long line of prophets whose meaning is absolutely undeniable. They meant this literally. This is not spiritually poor people. These are physically poor people. These are not people merely imprisoned by their sinful habits. These are people literally in prison. And our, 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 ten, our, our tendency to spiritualize this, it robs us of an ability to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. When Micah, Isaiah, and the other prophets speak about these issues, these are actually vulnerable people. I think we spiritualize, again, because we're afraid that we're going to lose the spiritual. But what we see throughout Scripture is that genuine spirituality leads inevitably to addressing actual issues. You probably heard that phrase. So many Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. That's what Jesus is helping us to avoid if we'll take this seriously here. But you have to identify. Jesus does. He says the poor, these are people who are destitute and by virtue of their lot in life are dependent upon others. They might be there for any number of reasons. They might be there because of some bad choices. They're trying to make some better ones. Let's help them make some better ones. Let's empower them. They may be there because they've got a disability that they didn't have before and now they can't work and make the money that they used to make these are people again that are dependent on others the blind that would re that would really apply to any disabled person with any manner of disability that is disabled in a way that makes it prohibitive for them to function in society without the help of that same society and then the oppressed these are the people that are downtrodden overwhelmed with trouble that they can't seem to get out of because it would appear that the system is just continually beating them down so who are the poor in the 21st century? Who are the blind in the 21st century? Who are the oppressed in the 21st century? See, we have a hard time identifying those groups in the modern church because in order to do so, we have to use language that makes us really uncomfortable. Language that the media and other people have co-opted and they've applied their own definitions. And so, so now I can't use that because somebody's going to think automatically I'm in this box or, or I'm in that box. So I hope you don't mind. We're going to attach biblical definitions to things today, and I'm actually going to talk about them. Because otherwise, we can't be obedient to Jesus. And I'm assuming if you're here and sitting here this morning on a beautiful day when you could have been doing something else, that you want to be obedient to Jesus. And so let's, let's talk about this a minute. And let me start with just a story of my own, a category of my own. The first time I ever heard the word white privilege was 15 years ago. Now, it may surprise some of you, but I'm white. And so when I heard that, it jarred me. And I'll tell you the reason it jarred me. It jarred me because of my background. I, I, my, my daddy was a diesel truck mechanic for most all of his life. He never made more than $35,000 a year the entire time I lived under his roof. Lower middle income family, that's what we were in upstate South Carolina. My mom chose to stay home, and so that was it. That was the income and whatever side work he could get doing shade tree mechanic work on the weekend. That was it. And so I didn't have privilege in the sense that I think of privilege, right? And so when I first heard that word, I thought, what, what, what nobody ever gave me a trophy because I'm white? What are you talking about? That was the first thing I thought about. And some of you are like, yeah, that's right. But, but if you don't do it right now, because I don't want anybody to be embarrassed, but if you could look around at some of your minority brothers and sisters right now, I'll tell you what they're doing while they're listening to their preacher. They're going, of course you thought that, because you're white. Right? So we don't talk to each other. And so you, I, what I did was I attached a definition onto a term instead of asking for a definition. Right? And all of us have that, have that experience. Happened when I went to seminary. It may surprise you to know that the evangelical industrial complex that we have mistaken for the actual church in North America, there's a hierarchy. There's a caste system in that. And I was, in, I was a lower caste dude when I got to seminary. I was not the son of a famous preacher. I had not studied under some famous theologian. I, my, my background was moonshiners and redneck potato farmers. That's where I came from. And so I didn't have the, you know, and so these guys that would be the, the sons of seminary presidents would suddenly find themselves in a dean's role or somebody, and I would look at that and go, it must be nice. Nepotism must be a really nice thing. Must be nice to be born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Must be, 
was I right? Well, maybe not. my attitude probably stunk, but, but was there a sense of legitimacy in what I was saying? Yeah, because some of you who grew up like I did, you understand what this means, right? It meant they had a level of privilege that I didn't have. That's, that's all it means. It doesn't mean they're better than me. It doesn't even mean that it's wrong that they be in that position. It just means that there's a recognition that they've got something I don't have. They were born with something that I didn't have. That, that's really all it means. And so that reality forced your pastor to start thinking more deeply about this issue because I would see those well-connected people and do that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, that, that's also true of me. There's a level at which I'm privileged by a number of things. I think about a couple of weeks ago, we were in the hospital. Our, our youngest daughter had to have surgery. We've got health insurance. The deductible's kind of high. But most of you have probably experienced that over the last several years, right? But here's the thing. I'm not going to go, thank God, bankrupt over that. We're going to have to cut back on some stuff because there's a big hospital bill coming. But I'm going to tell you, I'm thankful that, number one, I'm part of a church family and I lead a church family that is generous and fairly compensates your pastor. And so because of that and other things, I don't have to worry about how it's going to happen. And, and there's probably a few people in front of me, definitely a few folks in the tri-state area, that if they'd gone through something similar, that would not have been the case. And we recognize that sometimes when we're looking at people who don't have as much versus when we're looking at people who do have more, we stand in a place of privilege. Those of you who are educators know what underprivileged children are. You're going to see some of them first thing tomorrow morning and their bellies are going to be growling because they haven't literally had anything to eat since they went through your cafeteria last Friday afternoon. We already use this language. So why do we get upset when all of a sudden, with 400 history years history of slavery and Jim Crow, that we would apply it to race and we think that's unreasonable? Think a little bit, brothers and sisters. Just think. And it took some minority brothers and sisters to come to me and go, look, look, Pastor, this is what this means. Nobody's telling you you shouldn't have what you have. We're just saying, recognize that there's... And so we, we, but we can't even use language because, again, we don't talk with one another. Our media and everything else about our culture has taught us to react instead against one another. You get in your corner, I'll get in mine, and we'll duke it out. That's brilliant. That's exactly the way to hold a republic together right there. Let me tell you. Here's the other thing, though, that it keeps us from doing. When we will fail to think deeply about some of these issues, systemic injustice, I'm talking about the real thing, it will come along, and we won't even see it. We won't even see it. Um, can I be bold enough to just go and say this? We wonder sometimes. I, I've sat in groups that have said, well, what? Why don't we have more minorities at Covenant? Brothers and sisters, this, this to a large extent is a reason why. They're not allowed often to be a part of the conversation because we shut things down when it gets uncomfortable. I'm not even saying who's right or who's wrong. I'm saying a conversation is necessary for understanding and for the, the setting of things in the right place. But this is, in a day like ours, this is how you identify the poor, the blind, the oppressed this is how it happens. And, and here's, the, here's the other side of that. Some people are always going to have more privilege than others. We can fix some things. We're never going to be able to fix all of this, and I get that. There are ideologies out there that think we can solve this, and we can solve it almost overnight. I'll talk a little bit more in this series about something called cultural Marxism. It's a philosophical ideology that has a political expression, but it's not merely political. It basically says that any kind of privilege is automatically tied to some form of oppression. And so if you want to get rid of society's oppression, you've got to get rid of the privilege, which means everybody's got to be equal. All right? Nobody can have anything more than anybody else. Nobody can have anything less than anybody else. And as well-intentioned as it is, and sometimes people get nervous because the, the cultural Marxists will say something that's actually true. And when they do, all truth is God's truth and we'll agree with that but the root causes of why they say what they say let me explain to you for just a moment why you don't want to go to that extreme either moreover let me explain why cultural marxism is profoundly stupid it's because it produces its inevitable conclusion is it will produce two things in my heart if i embrace it wholeheartedly here's the end result of marxist ideology 
it will fill my heart with two things that Jesus expressly forbids. The first thing it'll fill my heart with is guilt because somebody has less than me. The second thing it will fill my heart with, ironically enough, is envy because somebody else has more than me. And my dear brothers and sisters, you and I as followers of a crucified, risen Lord Jesus have a faith at the center of which is the removal of those things, not their piling on. So we got to find another path, a path that's actually lasting. But you don't get to that unless you identify the priorities of Jesus. So hear me well, hear me well. Just because there are cultural Marxists that will look and speak into our culture and tell us that everything is about oppression does not, brothers and sisters, mean that nothing is oppression. Sometimes there is oppression. And when there is, we don't have to assume their ideology. What we must assume is the ideology of Jesus. Look at the simple truth that comes from his mouth in this context. The first recipients, he says, of my gospel and of the tangible benefits of the kingdom will be the poor and the blind and the oppressed. That brings good news to the vulnerable. In every society throughout history, up until this point, including ancient Israel, there had been gross injustice, oppression of the poor, the beating down of those less fortunate for the gain of those in the higher classes. And then right here, standing in the temple of Solomon, wearing the very robes of rabbinical authority with the very word of God unfurled as the scroll of Isaiah 61 is before him, Jesus declares to those people that those people are my priority. They belong to me. And so when we see people or groups of people who are marginalized or mistreated or lacking justice, they are Jesus' priority. Therefore, they must be our priority. Unity of race under the Lordship of Jesus is not just about saying, well, I don't, I don't see color. Oh, be quiet. Of course you see color. You don't see something that God created? You don't see something that Revelation 7 explicitly tells us without that diversity, he will not get the glory he deserves because God doesn't like vanilla unison choirs. He wants parts. Of course we see color. You don't get to racial unity by saying, I don't see color. You get to racial unity when you see a minority brother who's taken advantage of or mistreated and you stand with them. That's how you get gospel unity. You know, give, this is how it happens. And these are the priorities of Jesus. When was the last time you saw injustice for any reason and through your actions in response to the people or systems abused said, you're doing that to my brother. You're doing that to my sister. When we act in these ways, we're acting in concert with the heart of God. There is a grounds for justice, and that is the person and the work of Jesus himself. There are the priorities of justice. These are the folks that get it. And then there's a cost. This is where we often fall short. Dan Dorner is uh, the chief principal of a consulting group that our staff have been working with for a couple of years now, and this is what he will tell our staff. He said there's, there's a difference between stated ideals and action that puts those ideals to work and the gap between the two that's what management is for to make sure we close that gap well oftentimes we we have a gap between even if we get here and we go yeah so, so what do i do well we have to realize that there's a cost involved and we see something of the tangible cost of jesus as we look at these next verses all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said is not is not this joseph's son and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. When we have heard, we, when we have heard you, what you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He's already prophesying how this is going to go down. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up and three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath. What's he doing? He's, he's, he's confronting a very unhealthy form of ethno-nationalism. That's what he's doing. 
You know, when Elijah came, he didn't come to any of the Israelite widows. He went to this woman in Zarephath. In the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So this does not end well. It has a cost. Up until this point, they're, they're impressed, but puzzled a little bit too. You see that in those first couple of verses? You know, kind of like the first time I ever preached and those people that had powdered my butt when I was in diapers heard me preach in my home church and they went, oh, isn't that sweet? I'm thankful that's what they said because otherwise they would have said, that was awful. That was so bad. But they're looking at this guy and they're going, that, that's, wow, that was good. That was a good. Uh, it, it, but simultaneously, there's, there's some cognitive dissonance. They're going, wait, wait a minute, isn't that? Isn't that the son of that, that stupid carpenter, that woman that was sleeping around with the Roman soldiers and actually convinced him that she was a virgin? And, you know, I guess the apple don't fall too far from the tree. I mean, you got this dense light bulb of a guy in Joseph, and I, 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 how can he be standing up there? How can that be? In another text we read, can anything good come out of Nazareth? How can this be? But here's what we see. Jesus in this moment doesn't merely advocate for the vulnerable. He identifies with them in his life. I mean, the whole, the whole reason these people are, are asking these questions, is this not Joseph's son? It, it, it's because of the life that Jesus has chosen. Think about that for a minute. You didn't get to choose your life. You didn't get to choose who your mama would be, who your daddy would be, what century you would be born in. God the Son chose all of that sovereignly. And what does he do? Who does he identify with? Don't you think that ought to have something to do with what our priorities ought to be? He's identifying them. We saw the heart of God last week. This week, the God-man has chosen to enter time and space as one of them. And through his first sermon in his hometown, he says it's the, it is the illegitimate sons. It is the oppressed who will be first in line. And then he looks back at that congregation and he says, in fact, you might not even make it. Imagine a guy going into a church in South Alabama in the 1960s with Klan members on the board and pointing at that congregation and saying, some of you won't just be at the back of the bus, you're not even going to make the bus. Imagine that. Those people that you think are repulsive, they're going to get there before you do. That's what he's essentially saying. And so the, um, the response of the crowd is, is violent, but it's, it's, it's pretty predictable. It's pretty predictable. The fallen systems of this world often don't get fixed. Because sinful people who benefit from those systems want to defend them and the status quo that they're benefiting from no matter how many people get trampled underfoot in the process. When people in the face of that are verbal about social justice and they're really loud but they don't walk their talk, virtue signaling is much easier. Doing actual justice has a cost. Let's use the example of abortion, because I said this last week. There are no more vulnerable population on the planet than unborn children. It was a big brouhaha argument last year. I think we've had one just about every year since the 2016 election about whether Planned Parenthood should be defunded. Pastor, what do you think about that? Well, I think they should be closed. Not, not defunded. Permanently shut down. Criminalized. Those with MD behind their name who benefited financially from baby's bones prosecuted to the full extent of the law. That's what I think ought to happen. So why hasn't it happened? Because there's a cost involved. You know, when you remove all those clinics from the inner city, there are 2.7 million underprivileged people that get other services that will no longer exist. Who's going to replace those? Well, that's their responsibility. Yeah, you've missed the last couple of weeks. No way to make that attitude square with the Word of God. 
Well, the government should do it. Well, yeah, because they're so wonderful at everything else. Well, that's right, Pastor. Government shouldn't do it. Then who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? There's always a cost involved. We love to get up and thump our chest about our favorite issues of justice. The, the thing we don't like to do is get down in the dirt with those who actually are dealing with the mess that we like to pontificate about on Facebook every single day. What are we doing? What are we doing? In this case, doing the right thing has a cost. Do justice, love kindness, mercy, walk in humility before your God. You can't pick one. You can't just do two. You are required by the Lord Jesus to do all three. And doing so costs Jesus, and it's going to cost us as well. So here's the basis for all of it. And I want you to get this. Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61. Now here, let me read the rest of the verse to you from Isaiah 61. Verse 2 says this, And the day of vengeance of our God. Okay? That's what the text actually says. Jesus doesn't quote that part. He left that out. Think about that for a minute. He didn't just stop at the end of a verse. He stopped mid-sentence and deliberately left that out. I mean, if I did that, there would be a meeting. Pastor, we love you, but why are you doing that? You know that doesn't rightly represent what God's Word actually teaches. Your responsibility is to get up there and say what God's Word says. Nothing more, nothing less. Why did you leave that out? But this is Jesus choosing to do this, and Jesus authored the Bible, ultimately, and so Jesus can do with the Bible what he wants to do with the Bible. So instead of convening a meeting, we have to ask this question, why does Jesus leave this out? Why does he leave this out of Isaiah 61? And if you look at the, the rest, not only of his messages in the, the Gospel of Luke, but if you look at the rest of his life as it's exhibited there, here's the conclusion you come to. It's because in his first coming, Jesus did not come to bring vengeance. He came to bear it. And all this justice stuff is going to happen because it's going to pass through that, that singular apex, that focal point. He's going bear it. He came to take the punishment that we, the wicked, deserve. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how Jesus did justice and love mercy and walked in humility. He did not just stand by you. He stood for you and he stood on behalf of you. Why would we not do that for other vulnerable people? Well, they don't deserve it. Well, neither did you. Get off your high horse. You got what you deserved right now. You'd be cooking, and so would I. This is the grounds of justice. This is the heart out of which flows godly, righteous justice is that Jesus did this for me. So when I see a vulnerable person, I, I got a couple of choices. I can either go, well, they, they got themselves into that, or I, that's not really my problem. Or I, mean, or I can say, I know what God did for me. I can look at an addict. I can look at somebody who's made bad choices. I can look at somebody that the system has beat down. And, and I could be ambivalent, or I can be judgmental, or I can pick at all the different parts of their life that I find objectionable. Or I can look at them with the eyes of the Lord and say, that's where I was. That's where I was. In fact, I wasn't in as bad a shape as you. I was in worse shape than you. I was separated from God. I had no advocate. I rightly stood under condemnation. And the Lord Jesus didn't just stand as my advocate. He stood in as my substitute. This is, this is where it comes from. And so as his follower, out of the gratefulness of my heart, see, you can't base this in a love for the vulnerable because they're sinners too. They're going to take welfare money and waste it. They're going to do, yeah, I, I know all the concerns that are in your mind right now. It's all run through my mind. They're going to take the five that you gave them that you thought was going to Subway and they're going to buy weed with it. Yeah. Surprise. They're sinners. You know the difference between them and you? You can hide yours more effectively because you got money to do it with. That's the difference. The rotten attitudes that exist in my heart 
would come out in exactly the same way without Jesus if I were in that situation. So, so what do you do? Can you be discerning? Yeah. Do you be wise? Yep. Do you just throw money? No, no. You're wise. But, but it's about the heart. It's, it's not my heart for the vulnerable that gets this done because eventually I'm going to run out of gas if that's all I got. It is a heart for God that gets this done. It is a heart for God that recognizes that Jesus was my advocate, that Jesus did justice and did kindness and walked in humility, and he did that in my place for my sins, resurrected to give me a new life, and therefore I must look at the other people who, are, who, who don't have what I have, the vulnerable in this society, and say that to them. I, I, I'm, not just, I'm going to identify with you because that's where I was. That's where I was. You do this by first focusing on how Jesus came to you in your vulnerability, your sin, your rebellion, your just condemnation, and then you look at others and you do that. That's justice. That's mercy. That's humility before God. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, may we truly have hearts that long for you over and above all other people, and may that heart overflow into the hearts of others and into a love for others. Lord, as we see this, this kingdom and the way that it is manifest, may we bear fruit that is commensurate with those good works. And may we do so as redeemed people, recognizing and being thankful evermore that you stood by us, you stood for us, you stood on behalf of us. Father, may that fact drive our hearts to be the kind of people that you're calling us to be over these few weeks. And may we give you the glory for it all. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.